0: This episode is brought to you by Yolele, the revolutionary African foods company. Learn more at yolele.com.
1: This week's episode of Meat in Three is inspired by the reemergence of Cicada Brood 10. We're talking all about insects.
2: Some people are calling crickets the gateway bug because that's a
1: great introduction to what edible insects is all about. So, we found detectable levels of cesium 137 in 68 of 122 total honey samples that we had. Ah, what is that? Is it tarantula? No, what is it? It's a tarantula. Oh, and they're going to eat it? No, 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 no. Listen to Meat in Three wherever you get your
0: podcasts.
1: You are listening to Feast Meets West, the show celebrating Asian cuisine and culture as we have conversations with the passionate people from the world of Asian food. I'm your host, Linda Liu. I recently spoke with the internationally renowned cookbook author and food writer Hedy McKinnon about her latest cookbook, To Asia With Love. You may know her from her previous three best-selling cookbooks, including Community, salad recipes from arthur street kitchen neighborhood salad sweets and stories from home and abroad and the award-winning family new vegetarian comfort food to nourish every day or you may know Hetty from her many recipe contributions to New York Times Cooking, Epicurious, ABC Life, Food and Wine, and The Guardian. A true force to be reckoned with, she is also the editor and publisher of multicultural food journal Peddler and the host of the magazine's podcast, The House Specials. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Hetty. Welcome, Hetty. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast.
2: Hey, Linda. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled.
1: Yeah. Firstly, I just want to say how hungry I got reading through your book. <laughs> I want to make and eat everything in it. And it might be because I actually have a similar cultural background to you in the sense that my parents are Chinese, but I grew up in a Western environment here in the States. Mm-hmm. So your recipes in To Asia With Love that are Asian-ish, but it has your spin
2: on it, they just really <laughs> resonate with my taste buds. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, I've heard that a lot, actually. Um, yeah, it's I've I really, I really spoken to a lot of people who have said to me, wow, I can't believe I'm seeing like that soy dana steamed water egg custard, in a cookbook. Like that's something that my grandmother made for me when I was growing up, and and uh, she died, and I thought I'd never eat it again. And, th- and stories like that, I mean, I think that um, that's one of the really special things about this book has really been connecting with um, other people like me who had similar upbringings, and you know, it's something that. I feel like I didn't have a lot of connection with when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. So it's real thrilled to have that now through this book.
1: Yeah. Could you tell us more about your upbringing? So
2: mm-hmm. uh, where did you grow up? Where's your family from? Yep. Um, so as you can hear, I have an Australian accent. Um, I love it. It's adorable. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I um, I grew up, I was born and raised in Sydney. Um, my parents had come to and immigrated from, to Australia from the Gongdong province in southern China. Um, they were from the same the same village and um, they had come to Australia. My dad first, actually my dad in his teens, um, came to study and my mum followed kind of in her early 20s and it was kind of on the precipice of the Cultural Revolution and, and that's one of the things that... Um, You know, I think you might agree, coming from a similar background, is, you know, the story of the old country is one that's very hard to get from your parents. Um, And I don't know a lot about their upbringing in China, but I know from my mum that it was hard, and it was, Mm -hmm. you know, there was a lot of there was food rationings, and you know, they all lived together, and it was like they all really wanted to get out, and a lot of them went to Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Um, her passage to Australia was through, you know, um, she lived in Hong Kong for a few years. Um, some of her aunts still lived there and, you know, she waited until she could get to Australia. So anyway, they get to Australia and they, uh, they got, ma- my parents got married in Sydney and my dad, um, you know, bought this little house in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I was born there in, and I grew up there in, in the eighties. And it was, um, you know, it, right now, you know, now, you know, Australia is such a multicultural country. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a real melting pot with a with a huge bias towards Asian immigrants, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were like the, the the newer wave at the time. And I grew up in a very multicultural neighbourhood, but not that many Asians. You know, we there were like three or four Asian. Nice. Um, Chinese families on our street, and we were all related. You know, my, it was my my aunts next door, or actually on both sides. They were my, my dad's. Um, one was my dad's cousin, and one was my dad's sister. And then his um, other sister and his um, first mother. There were two. There were two mothers in my dad's family. <laughs> and uh, his the, the first mother lived in um, on on the corner. So, mm-hmm. you know, it was a very um, interesting time because i remember when i was growing up you know we were my mom's very traditional and mm. um, really never learned to speak english still doesn't i mean she's lived in australia for 50 years but she um so you speak chinese with her i speak cantonese mm. um we, we speak like we're from jungsan so i speak a very small uh you know the jungsan dialect and you know not that well anymore to be honest but you know enough that i can I speak to my mum in in Chinese, uh, mm-hmm. and she calls still every week. So, um, but yeah, You're we we daughter. <laughs> I know, I know. We had to, you know, Linda. It was really yeah. um, there was no choice. So it's something I'm grateful for now. But at the time, it was like oh, I just wanted to speak English, you know. Um right. But yeah, growing up, we we spoke Chinese. We spoke Cantonese at home. We ate Cantonese food. My mum mm-hmm. was very traditional. She really didn't really assimilate to living in Australia at all. And so that was my life at home. And then, you know, I went to school and I wanted to be Australian, like desperately wanted to be Australian and desperately Mm -hmm. wanted to be like everyone else and just to blend in. And um, I didn't want to do anything to, to bring attention to the fact that I was different. Um, and that's something, you know, you could probably relate to and, and you know, lots of children of immigrants can relate to. So, you know, I it was a happy upbringing but, um, you know, it was very, it, I felt very Chinese but I felt like I really wanted to be somebody else a lot of the time or I didn't know who I was a lot of the time perhaps. Um, and, yeah, so it was like, you know, Growing up Chinese in a Western country, there is a lot of influences. Um, you are just, you know, subjected to um, a lot of a lot of influences, and so you kind of feel like you are always stuck in the middle. And mm-hmm. I feel like for most of my life, I think I really was probably not embracing my Chinese ness as much as I I could have. Like I know with a lot of my mums. Friends, their kids were like going to Chinese school and and um, doing, kind of following more of a, a, a path that I thought was typical of, you know, Chinese kids. <laughs> I don't know what that is, but, you know, they had piano lessons and I just refused to do all of that stuff. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, f- I feel like that, that part of the growing up in Australia was... Um, in the 80s when it was probably not as um, open as it is now. But, yeah, I just I just feel like I didn't really touch upon or really connect with my cultural identity, if I'm mm. going to be completely honest. I don't feel like I connected with my cultural identity until I started cooking, which was in my 30s, you know, like cooking professionally. Um, so, yeah, it's been a long road. And I guess yeah. you know, a lot of To Asia With Love is... Is about that journey. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I love that. Um, so I actually had first become acquainted with your work in the last few years when I saw your mm-hmm. recipe contributions to like the New York Times and Bon Appetit. Mm-hmm. And then I read up more about you. I discovered your inspiring and very influential business, Arthur Street Kitchen in Sydney. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how you transitioned into food
2: yeah so it was really by accident i mean i was um you know i I did that the, the 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 normal path you know went to school went to university in sydney studied to be in pr worked in pr for many years um was in living in london and then my husband and i were in london in the early 2000s and um I had my first child there and then I just felt this incredible overwhelming calling to go back to Sydney mm. to be with my mum really and so we moved back and then I had two other kids in quick succession. So I have three children <laughs> and Kudos when my son... you. yeah I <laughs> it was like those years were a blur to be completely honest and I don't think I could have gotten through them without my mum like basically you know helping me every day yeah. but um I think that that was a real turning point for me, like having children and then being back in Sydney, I lived in this wonderful little inner city community and I just loved being at home. And that's like something I never expected that I would say, like having, you know, really worked hard as a, as a younger person to leave home and to go off and do all these things. I just had this, I just wanted to be at home. I wanted to cook. It was really weird and I'd never really, like I liked food. Obviously, I'd been surrounded Mm -hmm. by food my entire life and, um, you know, every memory of my mother is of her cooking. So food was always a part of my life, but I didn't think I wanted to make it my career, you know, like Mm -hmm. that's very different. But um, I started, I wanted, I got to the point, my youngest son was about one at the time. And I started getting these offers to go back to work to work for like part time and mm-hmm. go to PR, PR offers, and I really just didn't want to do it. I, and I thought to myself, what can I do to like have an excuse to stay at home? <laughs> so I really I thought, wow, I, I really love like meek. I'd love to share like the foods that I'm cooking at home. Mm-hmm. Um, because I've also been vegetarian for. 20-something years since I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we ate like kind of these big salads, lots of vegetables, um, and I liked cooking that at home. So I thought, oh, why don't I just, you know, but like kind of put these in a box and cycle them around the neighbourhood. So that was kind of the the genesis of Arthur Street Kitchen, which had no business plan, no intentions mm-hmm. other than really just cooking for the community. Um and that's what I really wanted. Like it it was never, I mean, I used the word business. It didn't really even feel like a business because it was also makeshift. You know, I cooked from home. Um, I did like registered my my kitchen as a as a home kitchen, which you can do in Sydney. You can't do that in New York, of course. Um, so I just started cooking. And I think, and it really, I, I really wanted to do an anti anti-PR things. I like didn't promote it at all. I just, you know, I think I made like these little postcards. I mean, this was in 2011. So it really wasn't even that long ago, but it was really pre-social media. Mm-hmm. Um, we I made these little postcards and dropped them around the neighborhood. And the first week, I think I had four orders. Three of them were my friends and one was from a, a real estate company, like up on like around the corner from my house. And you know, it was really quick. Like people ordered the food and they started telling each other about it. And soon I was like making, delivering 80 salads a day, mm-hmm. um, all on my own, on my bike. Um, I was really learning to cook while I was running that business. You know, while wow. every week I cooked, I only did it twice a week. So Thursdays and Fridays, I would send out a menu on a Wednesday. Um, by email, like no apps, like nothing fancy. And then I would sit there and write down orders in a notebook. I still probably have those notebooks of every order that was ever taken. Um, And then I would, you know, cook everything at home, box everything myself and deliver them myself. And it was just it it became like this magical, magical time because Mm. I was meeting people. I was, um, you know, having these amazing conversations on doorsteps and on street corners. Mm -hmm. And I just saw the new strangers became friends and they're still my friends. They're still very dear friends of mine. And so it was like this connection, you know, this amazing connection um, over an exchange of a salad box that became to mean everything to me, you know. Like I never would have imagined that cooking would bring so much to me on a personal level and during this time my mum was with me like every day I was cooking she would come and kind of like babysit my young That's great bonding. It is and while she was there babysitting you know she was such a, she's such a typical Chinese mum, she'd be doing everything else. While she was babysitting, she would be helping me chop vegetables, washing the vegetables, mm-hmm. you know, telling me how to do things and telling me what I was doing wrong, which was a lot of things, obviously. Um, and she, we would just be in the kitchen talking. She would like, and it was just like this mad, wonderful um, time for me where I saw a real different side of my mum, like other than just being, my mom, it was just like, well, I was then a mum, and we kind of like were just kind of would together. Sounds like she was your partner. Kind of, yeah, like unofficially my partner mm-hmm. um, and she was also like discovering a lot about food for me at that mm. time because I was not really cooking Asian salads. They were like, you know, lots of different inspirations but a lot of Middle Eastern stuff I used a lot of spices in my in my cooking and so she was also discovering a lot about food at that time so it was just this amazing kind of give and take situation and it really made me think about food a food and the impact it had had on my life and mm-hmm. it, that could have on other people's lives and I guess you know the journey over the years has been seeing you know really looking at the the role food has played in my life and and that mm-hmm. connection the connection that I had with the locals of my community with is kind of like the connection that I had with my my heritage and my mum, but like the food was all food was such a bridge you know for me it was it has always been a bridge to. Um, building understanding between people and um, between places and between cultures and so I guess that feeling of connection has really underscored all the work that I do in food um, up until this very day.
1: Yeah, that's a beautiful story. And um, did that end up leading to a couple book deals in Sydney? Well,
2: yeah. So the funny thing is um, I was cooking and, as I said, you know, I was learning about food as I was cooking for my community. And a couple of years after um, after I started the business, I started getting these, like, people would email me saying, oh, you know, I really want to make that carrot salad for my friends this weekend. Can you send me the recipe? And so I was like, oh, wow, I don't really have a recipe. So I started writing down some recipes and emailing them. These were two of my customers and just sharing that way. And there was this one week when I was out delivering salads when three different customers said to me, you know, you should really write a book. And really that was the first time it had really dawned on me that these recipes could be written down into a collection. So I did that and... Mm. um, in 2013, I self-published my first book called Community, um, and I was. It was really only made for the people of my community. I, ne- I never expected it to be anything. Um, really, I did not expect it to be anything, and I printed a thousand copies because that was the minimum print run. And I, um, I started, you know, and, and I put it on my website or something. And little did I know, like in three weeks, it sold out like a thousand copies, and I was mailing them out. Like I'd be, you know, I was doing it was all mail order, and it was like this strangest thing. I was like, why are people buying this book? Like this is like this is weird because it was written, you know, very much about my business, and um, and, and uh, the recipes were just the, the recipes I was serving up. So it was a really strange experience. And then I had all these back orders and. Um, I was about to reprint my second, you know, like the next more to fulfill all these orders that I had that I didn't have enough books for. And then, um, you know, serendipity has really, you know, been a huge part of my, my career in food, actually, because on, literally on the day I was about to approve the second print run, I got a phone call out of the blue from a woman called Mary Small. And she, it turned out, worked at a publisher's and had seen my book at her friend's house, and her friend was not even someone I really knew but he shared an office with one of my customers and had he had seen the book and he'd taken it home to have a look at and whilst this, this Mary was at his house, she saw the book, wanted it and then apparently had pitched it to her company even before she'd even spoken to me. So by the time I got that phone call, it was already a done deal in her head. Like she had pitched it, they wanted to publish the book, it had already been approved. And it was basically like we're gonna, we want to publish your book nationally. So I was like, okay, <laughs> all, all right, you've just saved me from having to print more books and yeah, being talk about the power of community exactly. And it's like it's really one of those things. And so when the book came out, uh, was released nationally by Pam Macmillan in Australia only. Um, it was launched around Mother's Day, two thousand and fourteen. So around May two thousand and fourteen, and. It was then, again, The Power of Community that really launched that book. I didn't really do any press. I mean, I wasn't well known in Australia at the time. Um, and it was really the people who took that book and started sharing it with their friends, their families, um, amazing stories I've heard about people forming their own little WhatsApp WhatsApp groups. And they're sending photos of you know, the meals from community to to mm-hmm. one another. And Um, people were creating their own communities around this book which was um, really such a phenomenal phenomenal thing to to witness and to even hear about because a lot of the times I didn't even know about what was going on with that book um and so that was the same year that I actually left Australia so um a few months later my husband was offered an opportunity to move to New York for his work and um my business was getting hard at the time because it was because because the book had come out. I was getting a lot of attention, mm. and people really wanted a part of it. They wanted to order, and I just didn't want the business to grow. I really just always wanted to keep it small and for my community. Same. And it was really hard with a lot with all this attention and all this demand. So I thought, hey, I could do this again in Brooklyn. I could start from scratch and rebuild this business in a different city. So when the offer came to move to New York, I jumped at it. I was like, "Yes, you know, <laughs> I, I can do this again." Because my my passion is really not in in having a huge business, but mm-hmm. it's in, in feeding people. Like that real one on one contact. That's what I really craved and wanted. So we came to New York, and um, at the time, I was offered. By my publishers in australia to write the second book called which is called neighborhood and i had said to them yes i'll do the book but i don't want to do it till i get to new york because um i, I really wanted the the move and and the changes to be to really inform the book mm-hmm. um so that's what i did i mean we arrived we traveled for a couple of months before we arrived in new york in january of 2015 and it was one of the coldest winters in New York for a very long time. It was a real shock to me, actually, because you know, having grown up in Sydney, where it's kind of nice all year round, um, and I wrote this book. You know, it kind of came, it kind of poured out of me in three months, um, and the book was a, is another salad book. So it was kind of like a follow up to Community, mm-hmm. but it's about kind of embracing flavors from around the world and, and kind of um, embracing those ingredients and, and letting that kind of influence. The what you cook and the way you eat, Um, and that's really kind of. And even though I did have aspirations to cook um, after I moved to Brooklyn, I did do the delivery business for about six months. Mm -hmm. I did pop ups. I had a studio um, for a while where I did pop ups, and you know, kind of rented it out to other people. Um, It's funny because I ended up really writing about food. Like that's kind of what brought me here. Like. It's being in a different city. Um, it really made me. It, it changed the way I looked at food. Um, it changed the way I thought about food, and it really made me very nostalgic for um, the flavors of my childhood and and wanting to share those stories as a as a different way of connecting with people. And so I really just ended up um, writing a lot and starting my publication peddler in 2017 Mm -hmm. as a way of really leaning heavily on those memories and that feeling of nostalgia and the connection that that can bring you so yeah I mean I didn't end up having that same delivery you know that amazing community delivery business that I thought I would coming to Brooklyn but I still think I have a very strong community just a different kind of community (laughs) if you know what I mean.
1: Well, what an incredible journey, Hedy. Yeah. <laughs> Across <laughs> oceans and um, with so many different projects. Um, all right. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more Feast Meets West.
0: This episode is brought to you by Yolele, a revolutionary African foods company based in Brooklyn, New York. Yolele was founded by Senegalese chef, activist, and cookbook author Pierre Thiam. Yolele creates income opportunities for smallholder farming communities, supports their sustainable farming practices, and shares Africa's ingredients and cuisines with the world, starting with Fonio. Fonio is a delicious, nutrient dense, gluten free ancient West African grain. Fonio is also drought resistant, so it's good for the planet. Yolele is creating a market for Fonio and other African crops grown under resilient farming systems to foster a more biodiverse, drought tolerant landscape across West Africa. Try Yolele's Fonio, quick cooking Fonio pilafs, and new Fonio chips. Boldly flavored with the ingredients and flavors of West Africa. Sign up for their newsletter, for recipes, notes from the field, and culinary discourse, and get a free bag of fonio with your next order of $32 or more. Learn more at yolele.com. That's Y-O-L-E-L-E dot com. Welcome back. You're
1: listening to Feast Meets West. Uh, So Hedy, how did you land on the concept for your latest book, To Asia With Love?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the way the books come to me, every single book has come to me just um, as a, almost like a personal yearning, you know, to tell a story. Um, So after I wrote Family, which was my third book, I knew immediately I wanted to write an Asian book because there was, in all my books, there's an Asian chapter actually. Um, But after I wrote Family and it was kind of around the time I was working, doing a lot of work on Peddler, which is my multicultural food journal, um, stories of home and uh, stories about Asian food and just that uniqueness of that culture um, of Asian culture it, it was something I really wanted to talk about and I wanted to share. And I guess, you know, at the, in the very beginnings, I saw it as um, a book about my homecoming, uh, which sounds weird because I don't <laughs> I live in New York right now, which is, you know, not where I grew up. But I see the homecoming as in these flavours, as in these mm-hmm. recipes um, of really like revisiting my childhood, the flavours that I love the best and embracing those and on the other hand kind of announcing to the world look i'm you might see me as this person that makes salads you might see me as australian if you you know hear my voice but i'm actually chinese and i think it took me a really long time to really feel like i was in that place to really embrace that and to make a statement and to me, To Asia with Love is that statement. It is me like coming out and saying, I am really proud to be all these things. Mm-hmm. Um, I am like, I, I want to celebrate that. And I want everyone to know this is what I grew up with. This is the person I grew up, you know, these are the flavors I grew up eating. And I'm so proud of that. And I want you all to experience this generosity in, in flavor and food. And that's what To Asia With Love is. Um, and I just feel like I've been so lucky that people have embraced it the way they have. Um, people from all walks of life have come to me with um, just stories of how they feel connected mm-hmm. to these the stories that I'm telling in this book. Uh, you don't have to be Asian to, to feel the way that I felt, you know, um, and to feel like you've to see yourself in these recipes, you can be someone of any walk of life, of any cultural heritage. Um, and so, yeah, this book is really just, it's its its amazingly personal um, on a lot of levels and I don't know if you've heard this from other people you've spoken to, but sometimes it's hard to let go of those recipes too. Mm-hmm. Like it's really, it's quite strange to see people making um some of these dishes that I grew up with because they they mean so much to me and they are, you know, they're a part of my DNA, you know. It's amazing to
1: see um, these parallels in other people Um, and then you see that, uh, oh, I didn't just – grow up with a steamed egg custard, (laughs) actually swaths of others have. And uh, that feels really um, encouraging. And I feel like I belong uh, wherever I am.
2: Exactly. I think that feeling of belonging is something that perhaps I've been searching for my whole life that, you know, and, and the feeling of belonging is, it's interesting because you don't find it in a place, you find it in people. Mm. So, um, you know, I think after I wrote this book, I've never felt like I've belonged more than more than right now. Um, so that's really interesting. And I think that by putting these recipes down, you know, it's interesting to, to come from a culture that where food is passed down orally. Um, it's not really written down, and so we're of this generation where we want to write things down. You know, so um, for for many years, I thought that a lot of the things that I was eating were unique to my mother. I thought they were unique to our family. I didn't know other people were eating soy dun. Um I didn't know other people were eating macaroni soup. I thought that was something that my mum made up. Um, I absolutely did. And, and funnily enough, you're going to laugh, I thought it was a dish that she had made up until about two years ago <laughs> because I'd never seen anyone write about this dish or talk about this right. dish um but I went to Hong Kong I, I mean I've, I've been to Hong Kong twice in my life once when I was a child and once two years ago when I went back for work and when I was there I remember I walked past McDonald's and I, I like looking at McDonald's menus in different countries mm-hmm. and they had, macarons. Yeah, I yes. and they had um, macaroni soup on the all your favorite breakfast yes and I was like what is this doing on a McDonald's menu? They stole this from my mom. How is this possible? <laughs> and then I realised every cafe in Hong Kong that I went into had a macaroni soup on the menu. And so I'm like, wow, this dish that I thought was my own dish, like something that my, only my mum made, this is from Hong Kong, <laughs> which is, you know, somewhere she lived for a few years. So that itself was um you know, so eye-opening to me, so to be able to like, write down those recipes, a lot of people have reached out and said, I can't believe that's in a book or, you know, I can't believe you talked about macaroni soup in a book because I think for so long, like, some of these um, home-style Asian dishes were not talked about in mainstream media. Um, it's not uh, just so many, you know, like, the, the lens of mainstream media for so long was based upon western foods and european-centric foods and the only asian foods that were given you know any any space were things like dumplings and noodles and of course there's dumplings and noodles in in this book but there's also a lot of other dishes um, that are not so well known but hey you know asians one of the biggest continents in the world and is the most populated and Lots of people are eating these dishes. They're yeah, just not it's time to write
1: about. write it down. Absolutely, and not so, take it for granted.
2: Exactly. So, like, even though maybe in America, like you know, steamed water egg custard is weird uh, to to those you know people that live in America. For you know, a lot of people in the world, billions of people in the world, it's it's actually not unusual at all. It's everyday food. So I think it's been great to provide a different lens for what an mm-hmm. everyday food is. Um, yeah. And I think I've done that. I've tried, worked really hard to, actually, I wouldn't even say I worked hard. I just actually recorded the things that I was eating <laughs> and, and that has um, resonated with lots of people. So that's been wonderful. And it's also wonderful to have a, a moment where you're bringing attention to a dish that is not as, um, that has not been, you know, given that much love in the media, and lots of people go, Oh, I love this. You know, I would eat this every day, or um, I could make this and put my own spin on it. And I kind of love that about food is the way it evolves. Um, I think food always should evolve um, with every generation. So, yeah. yeah, it's
1: great. I also just love that the recipes are vegetarian. And you make a point in your book where you say there's a myth that there's so much meat in Asian cuisine, but the truth of the matter is that's really just the case in restaurants and not so Mm -hmm. much in home cooking. Um, uh, At the same time, you're not shouting it from the rooftops like, oh, meat eaters, beware. This book is only for vegetarians. It's actually really so accessible for everyone, isn't it? It
2: is. I've heard a lot of people say to me, um, they've cooked halfway through the book and then realized it was vegetarian, <laughs> which is hilarious and just such a win for me because. Yeah, it's um, a compliment. It is because, like, for so, I mean, for my. I've been a vegetarian for a really long time. So. Um, going about vegetarianizing the things that, you know, I ate when I was younger um, has just been a real natural thing for me for the last, you know, 30 years um, or 20 years. It's been – and so the nothing in this book is forced at all. It's just really just the way that I've um, adapted the things that I grew up eating. Um, I mean, I grew up eating – before I turned vegetarian when I was 19, I ate everything, you know, like, and that means you would know that coming up, coming from a Chinese family, we eat like, you know, you, pig's intestine soup as a normal everyday meal, tripe as a normal everyday meal. I'd eaten everything. So um, the, the joy in that is that I got to experience those textures and flavors. And so much of my adult life has been really recreating those flavors and those textures of my childhood but you know focusing it on vegetables um so yeah I mean I really never ever since my first book I've never harped on or shouted about the fact that that my books are vegetarian because for me um you know I want food to be inclusive and I believe that my recipes are incredibly inclusive. And so I think when you put labels on food, like things like vegetarian or vegan or gluten-free, mm-hmm. I think it um, a lot of people think that they're missing out on something. Um, but what I think, the way I see my own food is it, it's you're actually not missing out, you're gaining. Mm. Um, you're gaining so much in, in texture and flavour, um, but also in knowledge. And so I think that, Yeah, the labels aren't important to me in the food. It's more about the stories of the recipes.
1: Yeah, I love that philosophy. Mm -hmm. Um, So you've now lived in so many (laughs) different major (laughs) cities. Um, What's next for you and the family? Where do you see yourself in uh, two or three
2: years from now? That's a good, really good question. I really don't know. Um, I don't see us leaving New York for a while actually because we, we, we got to this stage um, living here where our kids started getting older and so they're very much entrenched in their lives here, you know, with school and everything. So um, I think now that's going to really like determine how long we're somewhere. Um, but, you know, I think I really love New York. Uh, it's a hard city to live in. And you know, from the perspective that it's expensive and it's competitive, and mm-hmm. you know, more and you know, competitive for the kids, you know, in terms of going to school, they go to public school here, um, and it's and it's a it's a real rat race, you know, it's like you're constantly hustling, and and there's a, but on the the flip side of that, there's a lot of opportunities, and I like the person I am here, mm-hmm. and I, I mean that in that. I work really hard. I feel very creative. I'm always inspired by things when I'm I'm here. Um, I love the friends that I've made here that have become like family, Um, friends that are from also, you know, transplants from other cities. Right. Um, And it's just this different, um, it brings out a different mode of storytelling in the the way I write about food, Um, and I like that. So... I guess I'll be for the was season. That's great. Um, we'd love to keep you here, Hetty. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe forever, but who knows?
1: Yeah. So speaking of work and, you know, other creative projects, what else are you working on? I mean, you've done so much already with the with the books and yeah. you have your own podcast and yes. the um, Peddler magazine as well.
2: Yeah, yeah. so um, Peddler is this, you know, beautiful wonderful experience that is always there in the background um my my wish in life my ambition is in life is to bring peddler more into the forefront (laughs) of my work Mm -hmm. I feel like in the last few years you know I really do see myself um as a as a professional kind of cookbook author I guess because I'm always working on a book I feel like in the last you know, five, six years. like There's never been a time where I haven't been working on a book or promoting a book or, you know, something like that. So um, it takes up a lot of my time. But in the last few years, Peddler has been this wonderful kind of diversion that I have once or twice a year. We put out one one or two issues a year. Um, and it's just a really different mode of storytelling when you don't have any commercial pressures and you can basically just tell the stories whatever you want um, you know within within a theme and it's amazing to work with a lot of young writers a lot of first time writers all from different backgrounds um, and I'm really proud of the work we've done in terms of working with actually 100% women so far oh, we we're not nice. a, we didn't start out as a women's magazine mm-hmm. or a um, or a you know or a magazine just for people from diff- like different cultural backgrounds, um, but that's the way we've ended up. I mean, where there's a lot of Asian voices, which we um, who we work with. There's a lot of voices from all over the world, um, and we just it's it's a it's a real kind of high point in in my career to have established that magazine, to have given a voice to so many different people, um, and then we started the podcast. I guess it was two years ago. We've had two seasons and we've only done one season a year so far. Um, but that's a different, it's been such a fulfilling way to tell stories, as as you know, like the audio stories mm-hmm. and connecting to to people through voice is um, a very different way of telling stories. So we are working on the next issue of Peddler, which is probably going to be out in the fall, Um and also the next the next um the next season of the podcast which we haven't started yet but (laughs) once we once we start we we do it quite quickly um so there's always you know it's interesting to see I always saw the books as um commercial because they have to be commercial you know books have to have to appeal to a, a large audience um and I always saw peddler as like this independent little project that didn't have to appeal to a lot of people Mm -hmm. so it's interesting into 2021 to see those two worlds converging because Mm I I do believe they actually are you know like peddler started off as real and it still is is just real kind of personal narrative um without you know having any constraints and now I see and and to a Love is definitely as far as I've gone in 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 a book in real personal narrative and telling a very small story. And I do see those two worlds converging. So that's a really interesting kind of insight into the world of food media um, in 2021.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's great. You're basically trying on all the hats and now you're playing a editorial role as well. And it's so yeah. exciting to see you flex your muscles and uh, food storytelling in different ways.
2: Yeah, thank you, Linda.
1: Yeah, you're an inspiration, Hedy. Thank you so much for <laughs> chatting with me. Um, for our listeners, uh, where's the best place to purchase your book?
2: Uh, well, the To Toys With Love is available everywhere. Um, it is, yeah, at your local bookstore and, and all, always support your local bookstores. I mean, that's been a really huge part of the last few years um, since I've had books coming out in America is, is really kind of, you know, supporting those indie bookstores um, and bringing the bookstores back. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, everywhere. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's great. And um, you must be active on the Grams and social media as well. Uh, where should we follow you online and across mm-hmm. your various projects?
2: Yeah, so my, um, my Instagram is just at Hedy McKinnon and you can find my work at Peddler at, at Peddler Journal. And I have a website, which is, um, it's still my old website, actually. So it's Arthur, www.arthurstreetkitchen.com. Sounds
1: great, Hedy. We'll be sure to follow across everything.
2: Oh, Thank you so much for having me today. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you, Linda.
1: Thank you. And that's it for our show. Thank you, dear listeners, for tuning in. We truly appreciate your support, and it would mean so much if you could leave us a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back in a couple weeks with another conversation from the world of Asian food. Feast Meets West is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place.